Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to meet the most interesting and inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. Regular listeners of the show know that we kicked off our 2022 season with a close to my home episode, highlighting a couple right here in Maine that are doing some really innovative work upcycling fishing bibs and gear into durable apparel. And, you know, now is really the time of winter here in New England that kind of puts you to the test. We're beyond that charm of the holiday season and pretty well settled into some frigid temperatures and snowy weather. No disrespect to winter, though. I really love winter. There's a tranquil beauty to it that, in my opinion, is just beyond compare. But anyway, we're about halfway through, so soon enough we'll be in that mud season surrounded by the sweet-smelling spring air. And when I say soon enough, I actually mean now, because for this episode, we're joining the snowbirds and taking an audio trip to Florida. Unless you're listening to this in Florida, in that case, we're staying put. But my guest today is somebody that I feel really fortunate to know. I am excited for you all to meet them. David Riera is an environmental scientist, an educator, and an advocate with more than 15 years of leadership experience and academic and research training. He is a United States Marine combat veteran, an EF McKnight doctoral fellow at Florida International University's College of Arts, Education, and Sciences, and an Ocean Advisory Committee member for the Hispanic Access Foundation. So in summary, David is a very busy person. (laughs) So having this time together today is an absolute gift. Thank you for joining me, David, and welcome to the show. Hey, I appreciate it, Jenna. Uh, You know, we're in for a really, really good show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we met last summer during an ocean advocacy training that I was helping host through my day job with the Healthy Ocean Coalition. And I feel like we have so much to talk about relating to advocacy and ocean conservation. However, before we get there, a centerpiece of this show is getting to know and understand the human and that human experience behind my guests. So I'm curious to know more about what your early years were like. So did you grow up in Florida? Um, For me, as someone that bounced around quite a bit with with my uh, dad's Coast Guard career during my younger years. The Southeast in Florida is somewhere that I never lived, and I'm really curious to hear more about the area and more about your roots. Definitely, yeah. Um, and again, you know, I, I appreciate, you know, you all uh, reaching out to me to be a part of this. I, I feel, I feel um, very uh, humble um, in being selected and, and being part of the, the, the pantheon that you guys already have, have set up up there. Um, so, you know, you know, my parents are immigrants, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much, you know, an octoroon, uh, my mom's dad, uh, came on or was brought over on one of the final, uh, slave ships out of Morocco. Um, he's, he's actually original, originally from the Congo was brought over to Cuba. My mom's mom was already a Cuban citizen at that point. Um, my dad, um, I believe my dad's dad is Spaniard and my, my dad's mom is from Mongolia or somewhere in that area of, uh, of Russia. 
Um, so, you know, I have a pretty interesting mix of genetics, but it all came to fruition um, when my parents met in Cuba. Um, and, you know, things were going bad in Cuba during that time, obviously. And my dad, you know, had enough and, you know, he, he they just come, they came, they came fleeing, right? Um, you know, oppression and the government and the whole nine yards. Uh, my mom, when she came here, uh, she started out uh, working in um, laundry mats and dry cleaning. And that was during the time that my dad was trying to uh, get his uh, freight pilot permit. Like he was flying uh, to the, you know, freight to the Caribbean and stuff like that. These small, smaller planes and stuff like that. Um, so I was born in Alapata, which, uh, you know, is a, is a mixed, it has cons consistently become a, uh, an area of, uh, Latinidad, um, of African-American, um, roots, um, in Alapata. It has grown and it's, and it's still been like that. Uh, my godmother, um, still lives in the same house that she moved into all them years. The hospital that I was born at, um, is, is, uh, funny enough, right across the street from the veterans hospital. So, you know, it, it's when, when I talk to the doctors at the VA, they, you know, they, they say also, oh, you know, where are you from? And I'm like, I was born in the hospital across the street from here before it was called the hospital that it was, that is called now because it's, right now it's UM clinics and it used to be called Cedar medical, you know, Jenna. And I, and again, you know, what people don't understand is it, I, I've always found out that it's, it's very important to kind of go over, you know, to, to, to kind of go have, have like an inventory of all your experiences and be able to share them with people um, verbally. I mean, that's at the end of the day, it's within the highest traditions of our ancestors to pass on our stories, you know, verbally, you know? And so it gives me an opportunity to, to commune, um, which is why I appreciate the, the, the opening question to be able for the listeners here to get to know me a little bit because it helps me commune and connect you know, through my lifetime to all the people that have contributed, all the versions of me that have contributed to myself right now. Absolutely. And I think that's really just what sparked this drive to host this show is recognizing that there are, I mean, everybody has a story to tell. And in this, the, the, framework of this show, we focus more on conservation and advocacy, but it's really an opportunity to kind of peel back that layer of when you hear about somebody that's doing some great work or really anybody at all, you kind of hear them described through labels. And there's so much more behind each and every person that there's this beautiful journey and series of decisions and ups and downs and connections with other people that all culminate in bringing us together right here today talking in this show and bringing us forward into what we're going to do next. And um, I find that that piece so fascinating and am just really blessed to be able to sit here and talk to people month after month about their journeys. I mean, it, I learn so much every time I talk to somebody. So I'm super excited to have you here today. And um, you know, I know we're sitting in two very different 
geographic places at the moment with me staring out my window with a bunch of snow on the ground and you in Florida. But I feel like both places are these hubs for just incredible outdoor opportunities and have so much to offer in terms of culture and things to do. And I would love to learn a little bit more about what do you love to do in your community and in your your region and in the state? And is there somewhere that's like, a, is there a favorite way that you connect with the outdoors? Like, what do you love about living where you live? I mean, <clears throat> and I've lived in a lot of places, right? Because when I joined the Marine Corps, the great thing about the Marine Corps is, you know, you, you get to travel anywhere, um, you know, as long as you have a, a heavy backpack and, you know, <laughs> a rifle strapped next to you. Um, and actually, I, I'll echo, you know, I'm actually sitting right next to my window looking at the palm trees, right? Because the <laughs> iconic palm trees of, of South Florida, uh, some of them aren't, aren't even supposed to be here, but, you know, here we are cultivating them. Uh, and anything, you know, realistically speaking, you know, growing when my parent when my parents got separated and, and ultimately divorced, um, you know, I was a uh, I was a, a, like a, a latchkey kid, skate key kid. My mom had to work like three jobs. So any any school that we were at, especially like the high school that I ended up going to, my first high school I ended up going to, like when people sit there and clown around about like, oh, I had to walk like eight miles to, you know, back and forth. Like I had to do that, not in the snow, right? But in the rain. <laughs> Yeah, in the rain. Let me let me tell. Let me, yeah, yeah, uphill in the <laughs> rain. I mean, it, as uphill as Florida gets, right? You know. <laughs> Um, as, as uphill as Florida gets, but in the rain, you know, there, there's many times that I tell my students, um, you know, I remind my brother that he wasn't there with me, um, like walking and stuff like that. But, you know, there was plenty of times like my best friend was on his rollerblades and I did not know how to ro rollerblade and I didn't have the money to buy rollerblades. So I was walking, you know, clear, clear cut, you know, clear, clear through a, a sub, a suburb. To, just to get to the apartments where, where we lived at. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, I was never afraid of being outdoors, you know? Um, you know, one of, one of my, one of my fondest memories of like being outdoors, you know, started like with my dad, uh, you know, just going on adventures with him, right. In outdoor places, fishing, um, canal fishing, that kind of stuff. Later on, my God, you know, when my, when my parents got divorced, my godfather kind of took over that parental, that, that father figure, that father figure role. And my godparents made sure that, you know, I learned not not that I learned how to swim because I learned how to swim from, from my dad, but that I was able to commune with the ocean. Right. Because by, by that point in my life early on, I hadn't had you know, an opportunity to commune with the ocean and, and get to know it. And my godparents were fanatics. My godfather was a boat factory, you know, trained in Cuba when he, you know, before he made his way over here and he opened up his own boat, his own very successful boat factory. Um, you know, again, in, in one of the, uh, in one of the bad cities that had a lot of warehousing, you know? Um, but you, you know, you, you mentioned what are some, what are some of my favorite places? Um, so, you know, when I started, when I started my PhD program, uh, I, I, I was very intentional about moving down to Homestead. Um, so I, I moved down to Homestead because Homestead's kind of like a gateway city, you know, Florida city, Homestead, it's a gateway city. It's a gateway city. Why? Because South Florida has three national parks. You know, we have Everglades national park, 
we have Biscayne National Park and we have um, Dry Tortugas, yeah? Um, I've been to all those places, but not necessarily on my own as of late. Um, it's really been in support of service projects um, with, with local with a local veterans group um, that their main objective up, up until the pandemic, right? Because the pandemic kind of shifted stuff around. But up until the pandemic, our major focus for many, many years um, that I was involved with it since 2016 uh, was just going out to national parks, state parks, local parks, and really restore and do a lot of the, the deferred maintenance, you know, deferred maintenance has always been something that's, that's been huge on, um, you know, as a challenge for parks, especially national parks to get a lot of the work done. And, you know, I remember like one of, one of the first projects that I was, I was involved in was a, uh, a hardwood hammock, uh, restoration where we removed invasives and planted natives. And, and that, again, that wasn't out of my wheelhouse because my mentor, you know, my mentor, my only mentor in high school, uh, this Viking guy by the name of, of, of Mr. Murphy, uh, Kevin Murphy, that guy, you know, that, that guy really kept, kept me on the, on the, on the, on the, on the thin and narrow. Um, but he was, he was the environmental science teacher, you know, earth and environment science teacher. He, everything from marine bio to, um, climate, you know, and photography. I learned everything from, from photography from him as well. Um, you know, he would, he, we would make trips to the Everglades, you know, and I was literally the, the, his assistant, like pulling all his equipment with me, you know, like, like Indiana, Indiana Jones, right. <laughs> you know, I was, I was the guy that's, that was like, Indy, you know, like <laughs> this, this little butterball of a kid, right. This little butterball uh, mud of a kid, you know, traipsing through the swamp with like zero, zero fear, but a healthy respect. Right. So, you know, that, that's, that's something I, I've learned over the years. Um, you know, from, from the majority of, of, of my role models of my mentors is that, uh, you know, I have no fear. Um, I just have a, a healthy respect of nature. Um, and I have a healthy respect of our capacity as, as, uh, human beings to either, you know, stave the, the tipping points that many, many agree or already confirm we've passed. So that means that, you know, we have, you know, the, the, the problems, the problems that humanity, you know, or the Anthropocene has uh, pushed into, into our planet. Um, you know, obviously they could be human solutions. It's not going to be enough, but it, it is, and it needs to be, it's better than not doing nothing. So I'm the guy that usually when I go to these parks, even, even the parks at FIU or, you know, sometimes my brother, my brother, when he's down here, um, you know, we go shoot ball in, in the elementary school because that way I could dunk <laughs> using the peewee, using the peewee hoops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and my brother's a lot taller than me. So when he dunks, it's actually like impactful. When I, when I dunk, when I dunk, it still feels like I'm dunking like back in high school and I'm like, oh, I can't do this. Be cool. <laughs> the only thing I can dunk on is those, those Nerf nets that you put up in your dorm room. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Then you know what? You're still doing better than me. You know, you're still doing better than me because I I I, I think I should stop trying to dunk because I almost messed up my wrist on that one time. But <laughs> yeah, right. Get yourself one of those Nerf nets because they at least like fold down when you when you go a little too hard at it. <laughs> yeah, 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 they're they're already they're already cushioned for the for the for the blow. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
<laughs> but you know, I, I, I'll be honest, Jenna. Look, it, it's it's as it's as I've been in, in, in the national parks and these spaces here um, that I have history with. You know, I've built relationships through um, after the Marine Corps, coming back home, and and continuing to serve. Right, continuing to serve my community um, in the capacities that I do um, as an advocate for our environmental resources, our green spaces, um, you know, our oceans, our, our wetlands, the whole nine yard, um, you know, it could be as, it could be as, it could be as straightforward as this tree that I literally, I'm literally staring out my window right now that normally has, it, it provides a structure for these, these spiders that around, uh, sundown, they start like throwing, throwing their, their, uh, webbing and creating like their home and their, their outlet for the night, you know? And then when I wake up in the morning to go for a walk, you know, go, you know, get rid of the, the recycling or do any number of things, they're gone the very next morning. So they, they consistently have to go through this, 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 uh, this, you know, this natural way of knowing or way of being that, that, forces them to sit there and say, well, okay, my creation is only going to last X amount of hours. You know what I mean? And I'm going to have to make that work. And then I'm going to have to hide from predators or whatnot. And then I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to start all all over again the next, the next, uh, the next night. If I want to eat, if I want to feel secure, if I want to do any of these things. But the thing is that without that tree, the spider wouldn't have the elevation to be able to get high enough to catch its food, you know? So this interconnectedness that even the pandemic forcing me to kind of work out of my room in, in perpetuity at this point, um, that literally, you know, the, the only thing I could do extra here is just open up my window, you know? <laughs> um, so just understand that it's, it's, you know, I want everybody to be as clear as, you know, nature therapy, uh, echo therapy is very real for me. Um, as somebody that has to cope with, um, with the issues of PTSD, um, you know, uh, looking out the window, isn't just an echotherapy. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an issue of my hypervigilance. You know, I always have to be on top. So if anything like a shadow or a leaf or anything falls, I'm already tracking it with my eyes. So, you know, the same window that brings me peace, you know, also brings me turmoil because anyone that passes by it or whatever, I'm, I'm on alert. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's brutal, but it's beautiful. I love that. It's brutal, but it's beautiful. That's the perfect summary of, of nature and, and, uh, you know, just this, this experience on, on planet earth. And, um, I appreciate you being open and, and bringing that up about your, your, um, PTSD journey. Um, we don't need to go down this full rabbit hole fully, but I feel like that is something that I can connect with you on, um, where I find nature to be incredibly healing and often turn to it to work through, um, some things that have happened on my own journey that have been incredibly traumatic and, um, also have been working through some PTSD issues. And I feel like spending time in nature has been uh, 
a saving grace for me in so many ways in those moments that um, I feel incredibly overwhelmed or like my anxiety is just out of control. Um, there's always, even if I'm in, you know, I spent many years living in multiple different major cities. So it's not, I know that living here in Maine, it's a privilege to be able to walk out of my door and and be able to be in the woods within a matter of feet. Um, but even in those times where I was living in in Boston or Annapolis or other cities that I've been in, it's just even finding a moment, like you said, to like open my window and feel the air on my face or listen to the sounds of the trees blowing outside. Um, nature is just this incredible healer. And uh, I'm just now on my own little rant, but that's all out of gratitude for you being able to bring that up and being open about that experience. And so I know that you spent, I think it's eight years as a Marine. And first of all, I want to thank you for your service and your sacrifice. Um, I appreciate you. And if you're open to sharing, I'm interested in hearing more about what motivated you to pursue a career in the service. Uh, Matt, yeah. Um, so, you know, I was, a, I was what they would label back in the day, um, a super senior. Um, so, you know, after, after a lot of unruliness in those, in those, in those later years, uh, I got kicked around from, you know, from different high schools. I finally graduated um, in 99. Uh, I was a part of the Marine Corps delayed entry program uh, for since since really since 1997, because technically I was supposed to be on schedule to graduate high school in 98. But then as the public school system was back then, um, you know, these records were what people might might not recall on in paper. And <laughs> they were in a downtown office. The copies are. And so the, the new school had to get these copies. And, you know, instead of doing the due diligence, you know, I just had to retake, um, you know, afternoon school. So when everybody went home at 2.30, I was going on another class. And then I had to sign up for two night classes um, in order just to make sure I had all my credits to be able to, to walk. Um, my a huge challenge um, that I'm, you know, I, I share um, with trusted folks is just that the public school system, at least, you know, from from what I have here to, to speak about in, in Miami-Dade County when I was going through it, um, you know, and, and they still have them. They have these CAP counselors, which are like these college advisor uh, counselors. Uh, unfortunately, I graduated top 12 percent of my class. Of, I think the class was like 180 students, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. Uh, and I graduated top 12%. And realistically speaking, the people that got the counselor's attention were the folks like in the eight percentile, you know, um, a lot of people that I've reconnected over the years that I went to high school with, you know, that were at that level, they did just that, you know, they got the type of advisement and guidance um, to be able to transition from high school into college. Um, like I said, my parents were divorced. Uh, my mom was working three jobs and I honestly had enough. Um, I had told my mom, my mom didn't want me to join or anything, but this was really, you know, living up to the recruiter's promise, which was, it was a good way to have insurance, medical insurance. It was a good way to, to have a, a GI bill so that I, when I did get out, um, I would have funding to go to school. And again, it's the Marine Corps, you know, um, 
I chose specifically the Marine Corps because one, they always had. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be completely transparent. They always had the best. The, the best commercials. First of all, right. <laughs> Between the commercial of of where it all started, like in uh, you know, like in almost like Knights of the Round Table type of thing, and then the sword changes to to the Marine Corps officer sword, or or the one where it's like a chess game, and then you you go to the end, and it's actually a, a Marine Corps recruiting commercial. I was like, <laughs> I was like. I love, uh, you know, Arthurian medieval history, and I also play chess. So this is a perfect environment for me. Um, but in, 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 in reality, you know, I the decision that I made was this. If, if I was going to be a part of the best, it was going to bring the Marine Corps. And if I wasn't going to succeed, I was not going to succeed in the Marine Corps, you know. And I made that decision um, every day in boot camp was a challenge. You know, it was an internal and external challenge. Um, you know, we, you know, my, or the platoons that were in there that summer of 99, um, you know, we made it all the way to the end of our training to literally get met by a, uh, a, a category two, I think a category two hit, uh, Paris Island, South Carolina, uh, in Beaufort. And we had to evacuate. Like literally we were, we didn't get like a graduation. We didn't get the parade. We didn't get anything. It was like, Hey, you know, we came back from, from the base in Georgia where we were, where we were standing by at, we came back to Paris Island. Um, and, and people were the, you know, the, the powers that be were like, okay, everybody get go. Here's your plane tickets. Get, go back to see your parents, you know? And I got to see my mom, uh, I think because normal, normal, normal Marine Corps boot camp is about three months. For me, it was like three months and two weeks and some days, which reduced the amount of vacation that I was going to be able to get afterwards. So I had an abridged timeout before I had to go and uh, go to my B school, um, which I was in supply and logistics. And uh, from B school, um, you know, one of my first and probably long-term duty stations was in, was in North Carolina. But yeah, when I, when I ended up, you know, earning the title of Marine, um, you know, I told my mom that she needed to lose one of her jobs. So, uh, you know, she, she just, you know, she went from working three jobs to two jobs and I was able to pitch in, you know? Um, and that's, and I met, you know, I, you know, I met and, and, you know, served along, side brothers and sisters in the Marine Corps specifically, you know, who had similar stories, you know, who had similar stories. Um, you know, I, I served I, with, with one of, one of the guys that was my next door neighbor, um, in the, in, in the barracks, uh, you know, he, he was either, he was either going to go to uh, jail, you know, or the judge said, you sign you sign up to go to the Marine Corps, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, and he was from Alabama, you know what I mean? Uh, phenomenal guy. He, he landed, you know, once, once, uh, once we, we, once we left, uh, once we were honorably discharged, he, uh, you know, he landed in, you know, and, and what a lot of veterans get into, I think, uh, the ones that kind of land on their feet, they get into, uh, real estate and whatnot. Um, you know, and so he's doing very well for himself there, but you know, it's, it's a very similar thing. One of, one of my closest, one of my closest brothers, you know, he was promised, he was promised his green card. You know, which was was not in any contract. I'll tell you that much. Um, but here I am, you know, and the great thing about it is this come hell or high water, you know, all the stuff that, 
you know, I faced, that me and my brothers faced, um, those that didn't even get a chance to make it back. You know, I live or I try to exist every day um, above ground in order to have my service and my work, whether in the classroom, in the, in the lab, you know, out in the community means something, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, establish a legacy, you know, the Marine Corps is a legacy that, that no one could overshadow, you know, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to continue to put the training that the Marine Corps gave me, you know, <laughs> unwillingly sometimes uh, gave to me, or I should say, I should really say entrusted to me, right? Um, you know, and still put it to use. And I find, and I find every day that, you know, I wouldn't change anything, you know, and I, and again, I'm, I'm perfectly clear. And I think many, many of your listeners are going to know boot camp is boot camp. It's grueling. You know, it's, it's grueling. You know, the, the majority of the discovery channel videos that you watch, that's, that's a partial truth. There's, there's, it, it could get worse, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's, uh, it's, I sometimes reflect on the person that potentially I, I could have been had I got, you know, had somebody taken the interest to, you know, be my mentor in that sense, because even my mentor in high school, you know, he had, he earned his master's, but he earned his master's in an unconventional, un, 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 you know, non-traditional way, which is, you know, my trajectory, you know, my trajectory after the Marine Corps, um, you know, I came back and I did exactly what I saw my mom do, which is work three jobs. So I was working three jobs. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I, that wasn't going to be sustainable. I was, I was literally sleeping maybe three, four hours, but I was always working because I, there was always bills to pay, you know, and the cost of living in, in Miami has always skyrocketed overnight, housing bubbles here, you know, and, and being, and being, a you know, being a son and, 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 and most times daughter, um, in a, in a traditional Hispanic home, um, you know, you're there, for, you're there for your family. You know, my, my mom, my mom scraped, you know, uh, and busted her hump, you know, for, for, for me and my brother and, and my dog. Um, and the least that, that me and my brother could do is, you know, make sure that they don't have to continue to do that. Like neither, neither her or my dad, you know, um, they put in their time, uh, you know, and I, I continue to put in mine. Yeah. And I, you know, I think when I was growing up, you kind of mentioned those commercials that drew you to the Marine Corps in the first place. But, um, you know, when I think about the Marine Corps and I'm not sure if this is how everyone thinks of it, or maybe because I was exposed to military life early on that like, and you said this, like the Marines are this legendary group. Like in my mind, I'm, I feel like they're like the ultimate badasses and, you know, hopefully my Coast Guard dad or handful of friends that are in other branches don't take offense to this, but you all in my mind are like a step above the rest in terms of how intense and skilled you are and like the type of types of things that you're asked to do. And I'm not sure if I'm like putting the Marines on a pedestal or like how would you differentiate the Marines from other branches? 
I mean, <laughs> so I, you know, I apologize in advance to all my other uh, branch brothers and sisters out there. And, and, you know, and it's funny because this, this, this competitive spirit, right. Which by the way, the Marine Corps has had, had already monikered long before anybody came along, which was called the, the, the spree de corps, right. The spirit of the Corps, Right. And it's, and it's, again, remember the Marine Corps history was centered on, you know, Tun Tavern, Pennsylvania, all right, a bunch of privateers, aka pirates, back in the day, getting together and getting getting a you know for all intents and purposes a, a contract or a treaty, you know, a, some sort of an MOU, what we would call it now, memorandum of understanding with the United States government to be a force, you know, to be a force, um, and everybody has different accounts, yeah. Um, all, all I know is one thing, you know, when everything when the combat was kicking off. Uh, out there, out there in in, in, uh, in Iraq, um, I could tell you we were the first ones in. You know, we were kicking down doors. You know, we were kicking down doors, opening up pathways. You know, and we were, and you know, all the other branches know it. You know, we get, we we get, we're kind of like the goodwill, right? You know, like our our equipment is like secondhand of the army. You know, <laughs> sometimes we get lucky and we get stuff from the navy, right? But it, it's kind of like. I'm not going to sit there and say that we're any stronger, you know, or any, or any better, we're not better outfitted, but, you know, I just feel that we have the esprit de corps, you know, we have something at the, at the center of each Marine, you know, those who have passed and given everything, you know, the, the Iwo Jima monument has a quote that, that I, you know, I consistently verbalize and retell because I heard it in an NCO award, you know, uh, gathering from a, a chief warrant officer who, you know, was there in the begin, you know, in the beginning of Vietnam, you know, and had stuck it through, right? Like in country the whole time. Um, and he had made, he had made a smaller version of the Iwo Jima monument because, so the history of the Iwo Jima monument in Paris Island is that is where when you come from your three-day crucible, that's what it used to be, you know, like this three days of hellacious, you know, like just hell, right? Um, you you sit, you know, in front of the Iwo Jima monument and you receive your Eagle Globe and Anchor. And that is when you've earned, you know, the right to, to have the title of a Marine, right? Um, and so he made a smaller version of that of that uh, of that monument, and the words inscribed on it are, uh, you know, everybody gave some, some gave everything, something to that effect. You know, some gave everything. Uh, no, everybody gave some, and some gave everything, meaning gave their lives. Right? Um, there is, there is no doubt in my mind. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that each and every service member, um, doesn't matter what branch, um, has given, you know, of the, of themselves physically, spiritually, mentally, you know, and when you give, you're giving, this isn't a, this isn't a sense that you're getting this stuff back, like as an investment, uh, you're giving it right. Um, and it takes a while for, 
life to catch back up. Um, I'm really, I'm really, I guess, relieved that uh, my brothers and sisters that are getting out now um, receive more holistic transitional help uh, or transitional services, um, especially when it comes to, you know, doing, doing their disability claims, um, getting, getting into educational services, um, or being able to use their awards, um, training, you know, all kinds of stuff. Right. I, I really, I really know that, that there's been a concerted effort and obviously we could do more. Um, even the, the issues at the veterans hospitals, right. Some veterans hospitals are better than private hospitals, right. Because that's how they get run. But some, some veteran hospitals are like worse than free clinics, you know? Um, and that concerns me, you know, it concerns me that multiple generations of service members of this country, um, who again have given some, right. Um, have to face challenges just to have access to their um, their healthcare or their healthcare provider, you know, or services. Yeah. Um, you know, because you could, you know, there could be like the biggest support office two blocks away from my house. If I don't know it's there and it's not advertised and nobody comes knocks on my door and there's no way then I'm, I'm sitting here in silence, you know, not being able to go to a place that is supposed to provide a social worker, you know, um, it, it's, I had, I, I did not start doing my, my claim for, for, for disability, um, based on all the things that are, <laughs> that have been, you know, terribly wrong with me lately. Um, you know, because age is a thing, uh, and so it's taken me roughly 12 years after the fact, you know, the majority of service members that are getting out now, you know, within that first year, within those first couple of months, they already have their applications in, you know, when I got out, I couldn't, they, the, the veterans hospital did not even provide me with a, like access to a social worker or anything, you know, and I'm not saying it was their responsibility to do it. Obviously you have to ask and you have to do that, but you know, who, who do you ask? You know, that's the thing, you know, and it's the same, it's the same thing, you know, knowledge, knowledge is, you know, thank God that we have like rangers in our, in our national parks, you know, we have uh, naturalists that volunteer and all these things, because I mean, imagine if you're going to go for a hike, you know, and you're like, is this, is this the trail? You know, it looks like the trail. And then you end up like, Maybe it was a trail. Maybe it was a service road. I can tell you from pre from previous experience, right? Maybe it, maybe you shouldn't have gone down that way because there was no way to get back out that way, right? Um, because there was just no you, there was nobody to ask. Um, and I'm and I'm a firm believer, you know. I'm the firm believer as an old school that hey, you know the the worst question, you know, or the quote unquote the stupid question is a question you don't ask. Right. And I think that we just need to accept that human relationships is about information exchange. I'm not saying it's transactional. I'm saying that we should have a mutual respect. Like I could be in a bank. I could be in the national, you know, in a national park. I could be anywhere. Right. The other day I was parking at school like 
last Tuesday and some lady like just pulls up. I'm in hypervigilant mode <laughs> and I'm going for my, I'm going for my knife in my car and I'm like, this is going to end messy. And she like was in a panic, didn't know how to speak English, was in a panic and said, look, I'm looking for this building. Like, can you help me out? I've asked people, no one, no one seems to want to help. And I'm like, I got you. And I was on the phone with my mom and I said, I told my mom, let me call you right back. And so I, I helped the lady as far as I could get her because I was also needing to run to go teach my class. But the point is, you know, the point is there's not, you know, I, I guess, I guess, you know, I've, I've been able to live, you know, this length of time where I recall uh, no, you know, and again, people make fun of it and, and say I'm a boomer or something, but um, you know, this idea that, that, <clears throat> you know, when my dad wasn't, wasn't a pilot. He was working at a, at a auto, at a, at a car, at a car sales place, selling cars from like, you know, the seventies. Yeah. Um, they didn't have locks on the cars. Like they didn't have ways to like put locks in the cars. They didn't, they, they just didn't do it. The same thing with your front door. You didn't have locks on your front door, you know, and we've just, you know, we've just created more locks, more security, you know, to feel, at rest, but there's, you know, there's no amount of security, you know, I would say there's no amount of security that, uh, that needs to tie you down from being able to live. And I could tell you that people that look like me, that come from, you know, neighborhoods like mine, um, they don't, they're not able to concentrate (laughs) on living. They're just trying to, they're trying to survive, you know, and, and, you know, I, I look at, I, you know, again, I look at our, our ecosystems and I look at our environments and, you know, like the work that's that's happening down here in Homestead. You know, Homestead is losing a lot of agricultural lands rapidly be, to developers that are changing it into residentials, obviously. Um, we're losing that and we're going to lose food sovereignty. You know, for those that are, are listening to this, you know, after, after in the next couple of days, Take note of when you go to a supermarket, you know, or a Walmart or whatever, the supply chain has come to screeching halts, you know, and, and this is problem that, you know, we've been talking about sovereignty, food sovereignty. Um, one of the things that I work on is, um, you know, food deserts. Um, this is all, this is all something very real. That's a, that's impacting, um, you know, our communities, our BIPOC communities and our impoverished communities more than everybody, you know, and, and this is and it's very similar that those populations um, and communities face access or barriers to be able to, you know, to be able to commune and to connect with nature in the way that other people take for granted. And again, I, I'm, I'm saying I keep using Homestead because I look out the door or I look out the window and I see like the big campers, right? Like the big campers of the snowbirds, like you were mentioning in the beginning, that come down from like Maine or whatnot, and they like they take <laughs> up all the camping spots like a month in advance. And I'm okay because I know places that they don't know about. So you know, you know, the the uh, the environment, the landscape, the oceans, right, are plenty big. You know, are plenty big. Um, you all, you know, the people that have, I guess, the, uh, you know, the leverage or the, the time opportunity or whatnot, 
um, don't be greedy. You know, I'm, I've, I've been, I've had, I've, I've helped out tourists because uh, one of the things was that in 2019, I was uh, selected to work an internship uh, that was, that was sponsored by uh, the environment or co-sponsored by the environment for the Americas from Hispanic Access Foundation, um, which is a program that they all uh, worked in collaboration with the Department of the Interior, right? And it's a program that got renamed um, and still kind of works to this day. It, it provides um, people of, of Hispanic or minority descent, you know, to be able to have internships at parks. And, you know, I could have picked any park, right? Any park that was in network. <laughs> um, but I was, you know, I decided to, to pick Everglades National Park because the, the description of the work that they were wanting to do fit or connected with me on many different levels. Um, a lot of people don't know, or maybe some people do know, I, I, I should be making those assumptions, but ideally agriculture happens in national parks, right? And in Everglades national park, there was like some ugliness and we're not talking about like in like when, when the park got incepted, right? We're talking about like, in the seventies, you know, we're talking about not too long ago. We're talking about like around the time that I was born, um, there was ugliness and the ugliness was the, the national parks against, you know, the farmers and agricultural producers that were by and by, you know, minority, you know, they were minorities. If people don't, people don't consider that the overwintering crop of tomatoes for the U S is is planted and cultivated in, in Florida, you know, the, of the wintering tomatoes, and they all come from there. And they used to they used to get planted in many places in the Everglades, um, but they they shut it down. And so many years later, that area was you know they didn't have the money or the capacity to to fix it. And then an ecologist came and was working with National Parks, said this will be my you know my project, and you know they've they're they're restoring it right to a function that will reestablish ecosystem services. Right. But, you know, let me give you the juxtaposition that I've been in landscapes where I've seen mines, you know, bombs, you know, explosions. I've seen it all, you know, and I've seen that land from helicopters, um, you know, either going towards or leaving from, uh, and I could tell you that the landscape, just like us, you know, service members, those that, that could, you know, that, that lived the stories, um, the scars are there, you know, the, the, we share the same scars that the land has, you know, um, and those are the similar scars that, you know, urban sprawl, all this development is causing. And that's, that's kind of like when I was, you know, again, there's these numerous connections, right? You know, I kind of think of the work that I do, the wisdom, the people that I serve, um, my goals and all that. I, I think about it as a, some, some sort of a, uh, like a version of like the mycelium network that funguses have, you know, if you, if you really think about it, one of the largest land uh, organisms is the mushroom that, that the mycelium that, 
the fungus network that lives under like the red the redwood forest you know because it goes for like miles and it's the same organism that goes for miles and miles it's so amazing how those can communicate like the communication system that happens within that network is unbelievable it's so complex (laughs) but it's like one of those like you were saying like it's all connected, right? And I know I cut off your point, so I'll oh no, that no, that you, like you, you made my point. <laughs> you made my point that it's the idea that a, a running theme, you know, for 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 your listeners should be to come to a point to understand connection, right? And you know, I was, I you know, one of the things that I I worked really hard when I came to FIU was uh, one of the first labs that I worked at was a, a food web ecology lab. And that food web ecology lab like taught me stuff that wasn't in books, right? Because I'm gonna tell I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell everybody that, that's gonna listen here, there's stuff that you just can't learn in books. You know? Um, there's ways of knowing that do not come from books because the fact that we prescribe to learning stuff from books, right, um, is a way of knowing. It is a mode of knowing. It is a mode of communi- communing with knowledge and gaining and, and transforming knowledge. But there's ways that are never in any book, right? And so there's a connection to histories, to knowledge, wisdoms, right? Because we we really conceptualize knowledge from like the book and you know and and, and uh, scholarly or academic institutes, uh, trade schools, right? But wisdom, we we think about, you can't find wisdom written down, you know? This isn't like the wisdom that you find like in a fortune cookie, yeah? This is like being able to talk to a farmer, right? A lot of these farmers that are like third generation, fourth generation uh, farmers who will not have a fifth generation because their their kids are like, I'm going to be a lawyer. I don't want to be farming, right? Um, And again, largely here in South Florida, they're all white. So the, they have kind of like generational wealth that they've maintained and, and, and done that work um, and maintained agricultural diversity, right? Again, this is our connections, right? And so going back to your point, we really need to reflect on that connection. Like the fact that you're looking out a window into nature and I'm looking out to nature, that's a connection. You know, we're, we're under one sky. So whatever direction you're looking at, it's still the same sky that we're both under. Yeah. And I think um, for listeners, two big takeaways that that we can call on you to reflect on from this conversation is consider how everything is connected and what are those connections that you can notice around you. And then additionally, we live in a world that yes, everything is connected, but we live in these socially constructed systems. And I've heard like a number of these systems already mentioned in this conversation. And oftentimes those systems don't work with the way and the flow of the natural world. And the result of that can be, you know, real lasting impacts on human health mental health, environmental health, it's all connected. So, you know, I'm just, I just urge you all as you're listening to think about the systems that you've been a part of throughout your entire life and how they have either 
afforded you privilege in this world and opportunities, or in some ways they could be the cause of a lot of frustration, a lot of hurt, a lot of um, things that maybe you're self-conscious about or questions that like maybe something's wrong with you because you're not fitting into this system, but maybe it's the system that's broken. But anyway, before I get into this like deep rant about how everything's all connected, um, let's pivot a little bit. So you went from the Marines to working in education and conservation, which seems like that that's kind of a pretty drastic uh, career change. And I'm wondering what was it that drew you to the fields of education and conservation um, following your your time with the Marines? So there, there, there's, you know, if, if we look at it, I'm, I'm in my early 40s now, just, you know, for those people that discuss age. Um, so, you know, when I, there was a huge, I guess, learning curve that uh, occurred between that and that, right? I worked three jobs. I worked odd jobs, everything from working at Golden Corral as a baker to working at Office Depot, selling computers. Um, one of the things that I, I knew I wanted to do um, early on in life um, because of my affinity for, you know, for the well-being of animals was I wanted to be a veterinarian. And, you know, even as a kid, right, like, even when my parents divorced, I used to find like a veterinary office and I used to like have the gumption to be able to go and ask them like, Hey, you know, can I volunteer? Can I be a kennel person? Why not? You know? And, and, and some of them were like, yeah, come, come like for one day or come whatever, right? Like the shadow and, and do some, you know, cleaning and stuff like that. Um, one of the best organizations that I had that I got a lot of <laughs> wisdom and a lot of experience from was a an organization that doesn't exist anymore um, in that form, but it was called Vanishing Species, um, and they were a w- exotic animal wildlife uh, uh, rehab place that was based out of uh, the county north of me. Um, and and again, you know my 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 my, my first mentor in life, um, Kevin Murphy, would you know since he lived that way, he would help me because my there was no way that my mom was going to be able to take time off and and figure out and that that sanctuary wasn't going to send, you know, them. So I used to be able to spend for an entire year, I spent weekends and times off dealing with venomous, <laughs> dealing with venomous reptiles, constrictors, lions, tigers, wolves, cougars, um, all of that, you know? Um, and even when I was in the Marine Corps, when I was stationed in North Carolina, um, you know, you have to find outlets. You know, and I, one of the outlets that I found was I volunteered once a week for at least a good eight months um, on and off, but for a good steady eight months at the Humane Society, you know, and it was really just come, you know, because we couldn't have a dog at the at the barracks. Um, and I always miss my dog, but, you know, my dog's place was with, was with my mom and my brother. So, you know, fast forward, I worked at a veterinary hospital for about six years and um, I became friends that me and me and him are still friends. We became business partners and we opened a, um, or we started a business that focused on, uh, working with, uh, elderly, um, clients, right. Both elderly clients that, you know, are themselves handicapped. And we used to see them like come into the veterinary hospital and it would be a pain 
for them to even access to come out and they would be bringing like their older cats and dogs and we said no this is this this has to stop so we were we we kind of developed you know our our uber version of we go to your house and do the treatments and all that type of deal um so that was one of the jobs that i was working at at the time and you know i worked at the um, you know, I worked as a, as an animal husbandry person at, at the university of Miami for a little bit, um, working with, uh, mice, rats, um, monkeys, pigs, and stuff like that. So I always knew I wanted to be in a position and develop to be, you know, to ultimately become a veterinarian. But when I, when I secured my vet, my animal technician or my veterinary technician certification, I really got back into the swing of, you know, science, right? You know, this, this, this underarching expansive system, like I was mentioning, science connects a lot of things, right? Science is, again, is just a a way of understanding, a way of building knowledge. Um, It's just a way, right? It's a, it's a, it's a pathway. It's a circuit. Uh, And I was enveloped back into college. You know, I, I got, I got to college and um, funny enough, my first mentor um, at Miami-Dade College was a, a Filipino army vet that, you know, went through, went through the, his, his, the same thing I went through or I'm going through, um, served the country, um, even did time over here, um, you know, in, in different capacities, um, like with the Boy Scouts and, and, and the Nine Yards, but he got his PhD out of the University of Hawaii. Um, and so he was, you know, he connected with me, he connected with me. That's, that's a story for another episode, but he connected with me. Um, no, he connected with me in a very, again, I was very uncertain. You're not prepared for none of this stuff. I, 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 sometimes I walk around and I know I look the environment, nature does not alienate you. You know, you, you, you have brought up something very real that, you know, nature is a cure, you know, nature provides remedies to ailments that we still don't have names for, or we still don't even have an awareness for, but it provides it for free. You know, I, and I, and I, and I have a big respect, you know, for, you know, the, the, the discipline of like psychiatry and, and psychology and therapy. And I think that that works very well for people, you know, being in, in group circles and being able to talk stuff out works very well. It does not work for me. And I try, and I am consistent about trying. Like I, I go and I do it. Um, but the point is it doesn't work for me because I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a room with one color paint looking at other people's scars and we're just going on a, on a back and forth. Guess what? There is no cures in that box that we are sitting in a circle. doesn't matter where the box is. It's still a circle in a box. Guess where there is a cure? Out in the out in the middle of, of, of Big Cypress, Big Cypress uh, uh, National Forest, right? That's where there's a cure. That's where the, that's where the environment is spiritually charged. You know, that's where that's where you're getting to. I didn't even know forest bathing was a thing until I went to a Green Latinos uh, conference and they offered it because Green Latino conferences in person are phenomenal. I, I mean, I, I was able to attend this the, the conference briefly of uh, the virtual one, but it hands down there, the, the amount of community that, that Green Latinos puts together and the thoughtfulness of interactions with nature that to building, you know, um, again, I'm an inner city kid. 
You know, the the only time that I saw, you know, a dolphin or a whale was at the aquarium. The first time that I saw a tiger was at the zoo, right? Um, some people take all that for granted because while everything is connected, there's a lot of disconnect and a lot of challenges to access, you know? And so if it wasn't for the connections that people have developed with me and I have, I guess, put, become vulnerable enough to trust, um, to, to, to make those connections. And it's the same thing with my own students, you know, my apprentices, my mentees, you know, protégés, whatever. Um, you know, I tell them, I don't call myself your mentor. That is a, that is a, a title that is never fully earned you kind of lease it, right? Like true mentorship, um, even like according to the research, true mentorship is something that you have to work with. And the way that I've come to define it over, over the years is a commitment to somebody's success. That means that means somebody that's not you, right? That means that it's somebody that's not you. And that means that I tell all of my, all of my mentees or all my students, around, I said, you're stuck with me for life. The only way, the only way I don't check up on you or whatever, if you tell me to go fly a kite off the Grand Canyon, you know what I mean? That's the only way, you know, that's the only way you'll, you'll never see me. And I've had students, um, I've had students for the past you know, 10 years and they've magically, one of my students called me out of the blue, said, Hey, I need help preparing for an interview for medical school. And he, he just got the call a couple days ago that he's on the wait list, you know, and, and this is, this is a very bright young man that was probably one of the first in my cohort for this STEM, uh, this, the STEM bridge program that I, that I was able to pilot for a couple years, um, here in Miami-Dade County with, uh, with the help of, or under the umbrella of the trio programs, which are, uh, federally funded programs, uh, to, to really help out, you know, impoverished folks, uh, students of color, uh, to make sure that they can, uh, you know, go into college, right? Because again, the same thing that I was facing in the, in the, in the late nineties, you know, is the same type of, I guess, oppressive behavior or lack of knowledge, lack of empathy, lack of resources for one person to really go and, and meet, you know, there's this, there's this concept in education where, you know, we understand everyone's different, but we do not alienate, right? We, what we do as educators, and I've, I, I try to adhere to that as best as possible as I can, as, as I can with my, with my capacities developed at this period, I step off whatever high horse or wherever, you know, Shangri-La level um, ivory tower that people think I'm in. I'm just a regular guy, you know, I'm a t-shirt and jeans guy. I, I love wearing boots, you know, um, you know, that's one of the things that, that, the, that the Marine Corps impressed upon me. I'm never caught without boots. Uh, <laughs> flip flops is not my thing. And I live again and I live in South Florida folks. I've got, I go to the, I go to the beach in, in combat boots. So, you know, the same problems that we're facing, we're, we're facing it generationally. And so I know and I, and, and I resonate with what you said that there's systemic issues. You know, we, we've, we've 
we've identified them. We continue to identify them, right? Um, we know the communities, you know, there's awareness of it, but it's like the, the, the writing's on the wall, but everybody like put on their, uh, their, I just had my eye doctor visit and my eyes were dilated glasses and I can't see, you know? And, and it's, 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 it's both enraging and disappointing, but that is only when I look at the events from a point of outside, you know, outside of my, my realm of influence, I might not be able to stop landfills from getting filled, right? But I can when I see a can on the floor, and it's going to sound super like lame, but when there's a can on the floor, a piece of plastic, a, you know, a, a, a McDonald's bag, any type of, of waste that is, be, is be, you know, any, any type of stuff on the floor that's between me and my destination, I pick it up. You know, everything, I, I've picked up things like cigarette butts at school where you're not even supposed to smoke, but that's besides the point, you know, because I don't want birds. I don't want birds picking that up, thinking that it's food because then when, when, when the cigarette butt hits their, hits, hits their digestion, that causes complications. Yeah. You know, that brings me to, to the world of advocacy. And I don't know if you ever feel this way, but sometimes when I, when I think about what I do for work, um, or when someone asks me what I do and I go, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm an ocean advocate and I can see the other person's face that they're like, is that even a real thing? What is that? Is that, is that a joke? Is that a real career path? And, um, of course I'm like, hell yeah, it is. And it's actually like this awesome responsibility to be serving in this space and doing what we do. I don't know if you relate to that or have had shared experiences with that, but like what does being an advocate mean to you and what do you want people to know about your experience of being an advocate? <sighs> that's, that's yeah. Um, so everyone knows about lobbyists, right? And, and when you think about lobbyists, you think about people that have phenomenally unlimited resources, right? Whether it's, it's, it's capital, whether it's resources, whether it's influence, there's unlimited resources, right? Um, advocacy is an opportunity for a regular person, right? A regular person from anywhere to really discuss in potentially a democratic way, right? Um, what kind of issues matter to them and to get, and to try to, cause I tell, you know, like right now I teach pre-service teachers, which are teachers that are trying to get degrees so that they can go teach in elementary and, and VPK and, and kindergarten. Um, and it's within social studies. So this is exactly up my alley. This is a, a topic I'm actually covering tonight. Um, and, and again, you know, uh, I'm very humbled, you know, uh, today being February 1st, it's the first day of black history month, you know, and I, and I recall a time when it was black history week, right? Um, this, this, uh, this construct, right? This, uh, <laughs> 
you know, almost, I'm not saying it's a costume, right? Because I don't want it to, to be a costume that you could take off or anything or a hat or anything. It's, it's almost kind of like, um, it's almost like, uh, like a, like a, like a Bushido, right? Like the code of the samurai, like these principles that aren't written down anywhere. You kind of, um, you kind of develop them and, and make them very personal, um, to yourself, um, as an advocate, right? There are all types of ad- advocates out there. Um, but my type of advocacy really, really stems from having that mentor, you know, in, um, in high school who was able to, um, in my high school, in the last high school, they had, a, they had established almost like, um, because by that, in this point, change change agent did not exist. It was more about global citizenry, right? Because that topic was still was still like a hot topic, and you know, was a hot topic in the nineties. Um, so, this idea of purpose was almost like a seventh period that happened once a week on Wednesdays. Uh, we would get back to our homerooms, right? Our community, right? Because that's what homeroom is that that community of people that you recognize every morning. Um, and we picked the problem, you know, we picked the problem or we, we were able to get facilitated, right? Cause you know, obviously we don't know, what we don't know. And, you know, we were able, different homerooms were able to deal with very real world problems to us. You know, obviously we didn't stop, you know, weapons of mass destruction. Obviously we didn't stop world hunger. Obviously we didn't stop the rainforest from burning down or the fires in California. We didn't stop that. But, <laughs> well, but what we, going. but what we did do, <laughs> but no, but what we did do is there was a dangerous intersection that had a stop sign that only had a stop sign and the stop sign sometimes fell off. Right. And this, in the, the place where the high school was, there was a class that went to the, to the County, went to like parking and forth, went to everybody. Right. And pleaded with pictures like this is, again, before cell phones. Right. With with actually pictures to sit there and say, look, we need for you all to come, you know, like the, the commissioners, the mayor and all that. We need a um, a stoplight, like an actual traffic signals here because kids are crossing the street um, and they're getting hurt. You know, I remember one of my classmates, um, you know, not coming back to school because he got hit by one of the buses. You know what I mean? That actually happened. You know, it's an accident, you know, but people, you know, again, need to be vigilant. That was one problem. The problem that, 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 uh, that Mr. Murphy, you know, was able to tackle with us, um, was the problem of replanting or revegetating native plants for a very under-resourced park known as Bill Baggs um, State Park, right? It's, it's a longer name. But after Hurricane Andrew, right, came through that area, um, it completely leveled it, right? So to the the managers of that park, you know, it, pre- it presented an opportunity, right? Because it took away a lot of the native, but it also took away a lot of the invasives. So we were able to go in there as students and start becoming familiarized with our native plants versus what was invasive, right? Like those kind of topics were, were there. And that's where 
I didn't know it was being called advocacy. I was just, I just thought it was, you know, being a boy scout. Yeah. Because, you know, um, that's what, you know, he was coming from, from the mindset and we were serving the community in many different ways. Fast forward, fast forward, you know, fast forward, um, you know, through, through, through my military service, um, and then coming back, trying to organize my life. One of the things that I reflect on heavily is I, I, I was, there's a, there's a huge swath of, of time in my life where I was never trained or taught how to be an advocate for myself. And so I am intentional about, so I do advocacy training and, and lessons and workshops and for my students and for the community, um, both, you know, both in English and Espanol, right? Because let's be honest, you know, language should not be a, 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 a limiter to access here for this type of, of knowledge, right? And it's, and I do them all free of charge, right? I, I do them, no, you know, just bring yourselves, you know, <laughs> the material's all here. And I've learned how to do it in many different ways for many different points, but it all comes back to this. You cannot advocate for a place or space or another group of people if you do not have a clear understanding on how to advocate for yourself. You know, that means that you're so Brian Stevenson, who is a phenomenal lawyer and, you know, social justice, um, champion, right. Um, I've learned with him that there's like these four lenses, you know, to actuate that I've adopted in, in my work, um, and really mu pretty much in my life, um, to really, you know, kind of focus in on the big areas of what advocacy, um, like how advocacy, how do you continue to do advocacy in the whole nine yards? Uh, one, you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right. The moment that we're comfortable, what's going to end up happening, we're, we're just going to we're just going to be conformists. Right. It doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter if if um, if farmer if farmer Tom's farm goes away, you know, that means my property value is going to go up because those people aren't really thinking about like, hey, if a catastrophe happens, where's the food? Where's the food potentially going to be coming from? Right. Um, so you got to get comfortable with the fact that you're uncomfortable, right? Because as soon as you're, you're comfortable, things start lacking. Right. Um, and I, and again, that all, that all even speaks to me from my, from my issues with like hypervigilance and, and whatnot. Right. The second one, and this is, it's not in any particular order, but the second one is you got to remain proximate, right? Because honestly, I, you know, we hear, we hear this and I use this with my students all the time, act locally, think globally. Right. And so, you make these global connections, understanding like, hey, doing beach cleanups and underwater, like when I go with, with, with a diving groups, we pick up like phantom fishing gear, right? <laughs> from even from within like the national parks, right? Uh, from Biscayne National Park areas. Uh, we do that, right? But it's this idea that you're doing, you're acting locally with the auspice and understanding that there's one ocean, right? That we just divided on a map and called it differently for the sake of mapping. Um, but we all share that, you know, we, you know, it's not like all of a sudden the fresh water on the planet gets manifested out in space somehow, unless it's like a, a some sort of a, of a, uh, cosmic, you know, a, a cosmic body that crashes like an asteroid or something. But realistically speaking, the water that's on this planet 
the water that's within you, the water that's within me, um, the water that's within a, a, a hippopotamus or a giraffe or, you know, a cockroach in, in Queens, right? Um, all of that gets recirculated on one plant, right? And so we share that, you know, what, the water in our bodies is, is, a, is a reminder, you know, of the complex biological, ecological relationships that have, depending on how you prescribe to it, have transformed over a period of time, you know, um, to be where we're at. But we're, it's a constant reminder. I always tell people that, you know, that the, that the, that the planet is like 70 something percent, you know, water, um, when you add the salt water and the freshwater lenses and the closest thing that we have in our bodies is our brains and our hearts, um, that are approximately within one percentile, the same representation of water, right? So there's, maybe I'm looking too much into it, but there is some sort of commonality, some sort of connection between our hearts, you know, our minds, our brains and our planet, right? Because we, we have this common percentile <laughs> of water sharing. Um, oh, for sure. I know, right? Like everything's, everything is just so interconnected. Like, I think that's like the common theme of going throughout this entire conversation is it just keeps coming back up because it's like so front and center. I met you through, also, I know that I was like kind of teasing you there about the whole um, not solving world world hunger thing. But, but, um, what you actually did was incredibly important. I just wanted to say, cause linking back to the whole PTSD conversation, part of my issues that I have and what I seek nature for healing on is I actually did get hit by a car. So like what you guys accomplished was, uh, hit home for me. It was very important. But so I met you through your role as, um, an Ocean Advisory Council member with Hispanic Access Foundation. And I'm wondering if you could just share more about what the council is and what you all are working toward. Let me tell you something. Hispanic Access Foundation is phenomenal, right? So, you know, under under this umbrella of advocacy, right, we, again, I already mentioned that, that you know, lobbyists have these, you know, these wealth, this generational wealth somehow that they've established to, to propulse people forward, but organizations, you know, and, and again, you know, it, it's, it's Hispanic access foundation, green Latinos, a, you know, healthy oceans coalition and a number of other ones that are, you know, they are existing and, and living and, and striving to establish a resource platform. Look, you know, we, we know now more than ever that we can't go into community, into, in, into communities from like this colonialist, um, you know, frame and sit there and say, we know what's better for you. No, we have to, and I don't use the word empower. I use the word equipped, right? Because it's better to sit there like exactly how we met, you know, through, through the healthy oceans coalitions, um, programming, right. <laughs> Advocacy programming. I think that it's, the idea of being able to pull in diverse voices, you know, the same, the same intentionality that our purpose class had in high school to be able to equip, you know, and get familiar, get, like I said, like what Brian Stevenson um, was talking about, getting uncomfortable, getting proximate, getting really close to the issues that matter, 
to you that you're that you want to champion, right? Because it's through those two things that we begin to change narratives, right? And then the, the, the last part is this, the, the one thing that continuously wakes me up every morning, and you know, it's the, one of the most powerful statements that, that he brings up is, you have to remain hopeful, because hopelessness is the enemy of justice. And I hear that. I, I have to actually hear him say it sometimes. Sometimes I, I tell myself um, that same thing. And I, you know, I talk about it in class all the time. That is a, that is a hugely powerful statement. And I think that Hispanic Access Foundation, uh, Healthy Oceans Coalition, Green Latinos, it's this cultivation of hope. You know, it's this cultivation of hope and being able to connect us here in the trenches to the resources, right? With his, with with Hispanic Access Foundation, like I said, I originally started with their LHIP program or the collaboration with their LHIP program. The phenomenal team um, that the Ocean Advisory Council, um, the current director of conservation programs uh, over there, um, I was at a uh, at a at an angling and hunting uh, you know a forum where I told her I said, hey, um, we need to do something uh, more about oceans. Like, just tell me, I'm down. Let me know. Um, I'm happy to report I'm going on my third year. Um, we are planning loads of stuff for 2022. Um, and that's the idea. The idea is that Hispanic Access Foundation cultivates and regenerates and provides, you know what I mean, with no judgment um, and sits there and says, how can we help? They don't say, they don't sit there and say, this is what you need to do. Yeah. So how can people follow along with your work and get in touch with you if they're interested in learning more about getting involved with any of the things that we've, we've talked about today? Most definitely. Um, I would say my Instagram is, uh, is really the work that I do is very visual. So my Instagram is 305 steamed.ed, which is science, technology, engineering, mathematics, dot education because that's pretty much where I'm at in my life right now. Um, all of my, you know, all of my stuff is on there. Definitely go to um, Hispanic Access Foundation's website. We are embarking on Latino Advocacy Week. Um, and we're looking forward to World's Oceans um, Week this year, where, you know, I was invited to come back to be part of Capitol Hill's Oceans Week. So check them out. And be looking forward to, you know, towards the fall again. I know we just got to this year, but in the fall, we have a lot of great stuff already in the works for Latino Conservation Week um, and Hispanic Act and Hispanic Heritage Month. Again, that does not detract from the fact that, again, I want to point out that today is the first day, again, of Black History Month, right? And I hope that everyone celebrates and takes pause to understand the multitudes of contributions that BIPOC individuals, groups, histories have made, you know, <laughs> and have gone un un unknown and unnoted, you know, and, and, and it's amazing. Um, take that opportunity this month, you know, there's 28 days in this month. Um, every day should be a day, an opportunity for you to connect, you know, and whether you're connecting uh, virtually or you're connecting, you know, in your church, in the park, you know, um, do that connection. Um, it could be the connection that uh, 
equips you with uh, with knowledge or wisdom, but make those connections. Be brave. You know, do exactly what Brian Stevenson said. You know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable, because that's the that's the way we're gonna grow. Yeah. And utilize these 28 days to get out there and have more conversations with people that are different from you. There's so much to learn. Everybody has a story to tell. And um, I'm just grateful for this moment with you, David, for you sharing your story with me today. I feel like we're going to have to have you back on because there's so much more to talk about. But I'm just really grateful for you. You inspire me so much and the world is a better place with you in it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Definitely. I appreciate you all. And again, Look forward, look forward to, uh, you know, the healthy, the healthy oceans coalition work that we have in front of us. So I will be there as the ambassador wearing my hat. (laughs) Yes. Love it. Love it. And I would also like to thank the listeners. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more of this show or shows like it, um, find us at the American shoreline podcast network, wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribes, rates, and reviews are very much appreciated. And if you are a social media user, uh, you can find us online at uh, Coastal News 365 on Twitter and Instagram and the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Facebook. And if you would like to connect with me personally, you can find me at Jenna Valente on Instagram and Yena Benna on Twitter. So uh, find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines.